Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, ASRA Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta. I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm a professor of anesthesiology at Vanderbilt, and I'm also a member of the board of directors for the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. And I'm to here today as a host talking about a wonderful, amazing topic with a fantastic group of guests that will be coming up just shortly. We're going to be talking about global health and we're going to be talking about point of care ultrasound. And so just hold off on that. We're going to t- get started with that topic just shortly. Before we do, I want to make a couple of announcements for uh, Azure Pain Medicine. We have a lot of content and amazing stuff coming up in a very short time. So you got to pay attention to these dates. First off is that there is a webinar Uh, actually a symposium, an online symposium on environmental sustainability and your practice. And it's sponsored by the Green Anesthesia Special Interest Group from Azra Pain Medicine. These people have put together a fantastic program that has a full day of topics talking about how you can be more green in your operating rooms. And uh, I encourage you to join. You could go to azra.com to find uh, the details on the webinar and how to register but the date is Saturday, October 1st. So it's right around the corner. Highly encourage you to register right away and uh, be part of that webinar. Second, the fall Azra Pain Medicine meeting that's coming up in November in Orlando. If you're coming to the meeting, October 6th is the deadline, the early bird deadline for registering. That's where you save money if you register by October 6th. Highly encourage you to do that. It's gonna be a great meeting, so you don't wanna miss it anyway. You might as well save some money doing it Deadline's October 6th, so mark that on your calendar. And the last thing I want to mention is everybody knows Azure Pain Medicine for their big meetings, their spring meeting, their fall meeting. Maybe you know about their point of care ultrasound course, weekend course, or their cadaver course. We know about these big things, but Azra has a whole host of online smaller topics, hot topics that they do throughout the year. They have these webinars like the Environmental Sustainability Webinar. There is stuff happening every month in the society. So I encourage you to go to the website, look at upcoming events. Some of these are free to register. Some are a very nominal fee, but there's a way to get learning, education, and be part of the community every month of the year. And then, of course, join us at those big meetings every year. So without further ado, welcome. Thank you for joining me. I'm I'm so happy to have all of you guys here for the show. Um, We're going to have a wonderful conversation about... Um, point of care ultrasound and its use in resource limited environments. And that's going to mean a lot of different things as we go through the conversation today. So um, uh, let's uh, delay the conversation, but I want to do the introductions and make sure everybody knows who everybody is, because you guys have quite the CV and I'm not going to do it justice by these little tiny bios, but I'll try to do the best I can. So first off, we have Mark Brulette. Mark is an anesthesiologist at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. He serves as a co-director of his department's global health initiative and is co-chair of his hospital's global medical health equity division. At the national level, he's the uh, uh, serving chair of the Azra Pain Medicine Global Health Special Interest Group. And he's also been an outside teacher for regional anesthesia and acute pain medicine um, at the Konfo Anokie Teaching Hospital in Kumasi, Ghana. Uh, which is funded and organized by the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. He has no conflicts of interest to report for today's discussion. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Next, uh, we have uh, Commander Brendan Byrne. 
he's a faculty at the University of Michigan. He's the director of tactical emergency medical services, wilderness medicine, and serves uh, in the Naval Reserves. He served as undersea medical officer and senior medical officer of the USS Tranquility from 2009 to 2011. And then after completing his residency, he reported to Naval Medical Center Portsmouth to serve as a residency program core faculty and supported the 633rd Medical Group at Langley Air Force Base, Naval Hospital, Rota and Africa Partnership Station in the Kingdom of Gabon. Um, and Dr. Byrne, I think you have to make a disclosure as well. Yeah, yeah I appreciate you having me here, Raj. Um, so, you know, I'm here as faculty from U of M, but you know, I still am in the Navy Reserve. So the re requisite disclosure is that anything I say here is purely experientially based and does not in any way represent the official policy or practice of the United States government, the DOD, the United States Special Operations Command, or the United States Navy. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Uh, sitting right next to him is Dr. Melissa Byrne. Uh, she's currently an, a, a clinical assistant professor uh, in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. She's the associate program director for the core residency program and the director of point of care ultrasound education in the department. She's uh, a frequent focus uh, teaching faculty for the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. We get to see her a lot at our conferences. Uh, Melissa, it's great to see you. Welcome. Great to see you all. I'm really excited for today's conversation. Thank you. Next up in uh, another two-person box here, we have uh, Dr. Lena Dolman. Uh, she's an anesthesiologist in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care and Pain Medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital. She's lectured and run workshops on anesthesia topics like regional anesthesia, POCUS, airway management, trauma in Indonesia, Vietnam, Malawi, Botswana, Sri Lanka, Uganda, and South Africa, more countries than many of us have ever been to um, over her 40 years practicing anesthesia. She's uh, held several leadership and committee positions related to global health for HBO, SEA, the ASA, and the World Health Organization. And she serves as the vice chair of the Azure Pain Medicine Global Health Special Interest Group. She also has no conflicts of interest to report. Dr. Ullman, welcome, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really fun to be here. Great. Um, sitting right next to her, is Dr. Omar Haider. He uh, grew up in the Himalayan foothills in Islamabad, Pakistan, where he's also attended medical school. He currently practices anesthesia and critical care medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and directs the Ellison 14 Multidisciplinary ICU. He's passionate about democratizing access to handheld ultrasound imaging, which we're gonna talk about today. He teaches POCUS to residents and fellows and carries out device research and development on ultrasound-guided vascular access. He also has no conflicts of interest to report. Dr. Heider, good to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Very excited to be here. And I was born on just the other side of the border in Punjab, India. So I'm, you know, we're almost neighbors there for where we were born. All right. Uh, and next up, all the way from Ghana, is Dr. Moses Siao Frimpong. He's a senior specialist anesthesiologist and intensivist at the Directorate of Anesthesia and Intensive Care at Konfo Anokia Teaching Hospital in Ghana. He is the head of intensive care unit of the hospital there. He's also a part-time lecturer in anesthesiology and intensive care at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Ghana. He has a lot of interest in ultrasound-guided uh, regional anesthesia and POCUS, and he's involved in the teaching of residents and medical officers in POCUS. He reports no conflicts of interest at this time for this conversation, and he's actually coming to us from Nigeria right now, 
Uh, Dr. Seal Frimpong, nice to meet you and nice to have you on this conversation. Thank you. Excited to be here. Wonderful. Um, so let me introduce this topic and I'm going to um, uh, kind of direct the conversation a little bit. We have a lot of people on screen, so we'll we'll kind of take it a little bit at a time. So the, the first question um, that I had was, when we think of point of care ultrasound, um, you know, it's relatively a new topic in the United States and in Europe. Um, it uh, largely surrounds the prevalence of ultrasound technology that's spread out through the um, uh, hands of clinicians in a lot of places that wasn't there before. So is there really a need for point of care ultrasound in low resource countries and in combat support scenarios? There's two different areas that are sort of austere locations that oftentimes um, uh expensive equipment may be a problematic situation. So I'm going to direct this to Moses first. Um, you know, in, in, in the places that you work or you've, you've helped teach, do you think this is out of reach for that community or is it an important part of their clinical um, care of patients? Well, from my experience, it's, it's a very important uh, device that helps a lot in clinical practice. Unfortunately, because of lack of exposure, people don't really appreciate its use. And th that could explain why it's not so its, its use is not so widespread in uh, resource-limited centers. But once the exposure is given and people appreciate the scope of application of focus, it's it's really sinks in, the benefits can become so obvious because POCOS helps a lot in clinical practice, in diagnostics, that other major equipment like CT scan, especially in resource-limited areas where you cannot get some of these devices, POCOS comes in handy to help in the diagnosis. And Brendan, can you talk a little bit about the, some of the combat zones that you've seen it? You know, again, I've, I've had an opportunity to work with some special forces medics um, who've rotated through from Fort Campbell near us at Vanderbilt, and they come through and they're interested. At the time, we were talking about regional anesthesia, and they're talking about literally at the point of injury uh, on the combat zone. Do you see POCUS being used in that environment, or is that a little too esoteric for that urgent of a situation? No, actually, I think that's kind of the primacy uh, of where this comes into play. And obviously, this has been a, an evolving field in the last five to 10 years. It's really been enabled by the development of smaller and more portable technology. But if you think about you know, combat care, tactical care from the perspective of the, the phases of care, really the only time you don't use it is when you're directly under fire. Other than that, you absolutely use it in tactical field care in, and in prolonged casualty care. It is a gem that can, you know, it's a tool that you can put in your pocket or put in your backpack and perform both diagnostics and therapeutics all in the space of, you know, what really amounts to inches and inches and ounces instead of, you know, large footprint uh, logistic platforms with associated cost and weight and size. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I think this is a place that is 
really burgeoning and we are actively teaching it to our medics on the front lines right now. And, and Lena, I, I'm curious, um, you've, you've been to a lot of different countries and, and heard their needs and uh, how medical care is delivered in those places. Um, piggybacking off that first question, but I'll add something to this. Does an investment in equipment and the education for point-of-care ultrasound really deliver value for these patients in those areas when those resources can be used for other things as well? How do you balance, you know, in the West and often in these uh, resource-heavy environments, we don't really think about the consequences of one thing versus another, but as those resources get tighter, it's a choice and you're often leaving something else off the table when you're picking something um, for, uh, let's say for point of care ultrasound. Uh, so Raj, it's really interesting that you asked that because 10 to 15 years ago, when I heard people talking about bringing ultrasound to low resource countries, I was very skeptical because I thought, why would they be spending money on ultrasound, which was very expensive when they could spend it on, on a pulse oximeter or an anesthesia machine when, or you know, just basic things, uh, spinal needles, things like that. Um, but over the last 10 years, I've really been sold on how very useful it can be to have these devices, uh, both in the perioperative setting where you can may maybe help to stabilize a patient or make a, a diagnosis about a problem that you should know about before you put them to sleep. And it's also great, and this sort of overlaps with the military use, um, if you have some patient in a district hospital where they don't have a lot of resources, let's say it's a trauma patient, um, and you're trying to make the decision of what will this patient tolerate being transported to a hospital with more resources over a, a bumpy road uh, in a truck, uh, and what do we have to do before they get transported to make sure that they don't um, get injured on the way? And so you can may maybe diagnose hypovolemia, whether they need a transfusion. Um, you can maybe, if, if the patient has a, a femoral fracture, you can give him a block so that it's not so uncomfortable on the transport. If he's, you can make sure he doesn't have a pneumothorax, things like that. And I, I, um, I was also, I think the biggest problem has been getting people trained up because there aren't enough physicians to train and there aren't enough physicians to become trainers um, but people learn incredibly quickly and learn to use it very quickly. And I can give you an example in Vietnam where a physician anesthesiologist was, uh, they were discussing picking up pneumothoraces on um, ultrasound in the morning. And by the afternoon, he had a trauma patient that he couldn't figure out why he was hypotensive postoperatively. He checked for a pneumothorax, he picked up a pneumothorax, and then he treated the patient. And he did that by himself after having just heard a lecture in the morning on it. So I think it's a great technique, a lot, a lot of promise. Yeah, that's really that's really exciting to see that turnaround for such a short amount of time. Um, and and um, that, that leads me to my next question. I'm going to direct this to Mark and then to Melissa as well, is um, when you think of the primary clinical application, POCUS in, involves a lot of things and um, can span um, some pretty complex diagnostic skill sets. Um, what do you think the primary clinical applications are or uh, sort of the early clinical applications people should focus on to make the value of POCUS evident. Uh, Lena just talked about pneumothorax as a, uh, in a trauma situation as being a really high yield 
um, use of POCUS. Mark, what do you think as you look at places that are trying to decide about whether this investment is worth it? And again, it's not just investment in equipment, but in the time to train mm-hmm. people to use this properly and maintain that skill set. Where do you think the highest value, high yield uses are? Well, as a, as an orthopedic anesthesiologist, I'm not a, I'm not a POCUS expert, but I have worked with uh, Moses at uh, the Confinochi Teaching Hospital for more than ten years now, and we've we've done a lot of work with ultrasound, and uh, even doing nerve blocks. We have found that uh, frequently it's uh, been valuable to uh, put the probe on the the lungs or the heart and diagnose. Uh, hypoxia, you know, reasons for hypoxia, hypotension. And uh, it's just very evident that uh, these machines are being uh, more affordable, uh, more portable. The education is uh, spreading. People are realizing the, the value in these that they can, they can be life-saving uh, devices. So like Moses was saying, I think I think a lot of the um, way forward has to do with sort of introducing that potential to new places and getting that to kind of catch on. And I think from there, hospitals and uh, other um, uh, places will then invest in in these uh, tools. Melissa, before I get to your answer on that question, so I, there's a comment from Hari Kalagara, who many of us know, who's an avid POCUS enthusiast and educator, and he's asking the question, is there a system or a process, any organization that helps with shipping transfer of unused ultrasound machines from the USA, Europe, uh, and other places that are maybe upgrading devices or have uh, unused devices that are still very functional to places that need them at maybe a lower cost or um, or even as a donation, does anybody know of anything that's a process that we could tap people into? Oh, I, go ahead, Lena. Uh, I know that Sonosite uh, collects used um, ultrasound equipment and will sell it or donate it for, depending on the situation, uh, to, to countries that need them. I, I'm sure that some of the other ones do also. So, I, I, but that's the only one I've worked with. So. Might be something that um, as a society and through our special interest groups, maybe we can start generating a process to do that for more than one brand, you know, and and kind of make an open uh, exchange or communication, at least between um, people who need it and people who who um, have spare that they're not using. Especially there's a lot of people that have an ultrasound sitting in the corner, not doing anything um, for a variety of reasons. So it might be an opportunity for that. Melissa, go ahead. Um, so, you know, you've educated a lot of people on point of care ultrasound. There's a learning curve for all of it. Um, where do you think the high yield stuff is that if you were going to try to convince a new community to adopt it, to see its value, what would you teach them? Um, I think it would probably focus on like the big three. First and foremost, you know, you cannot uh, discount cardiac ultrasound. Of course, it is a lot of time investment in the sense that in order to become competent at that skill, it does take a a certainly higher number of um, obtained images and you know acquired images that you can interpret. Um, but I think insofar as trauma applications, um, assessment of hypovolemia, that certainly will um, 
uh, be able to garner a lot of information for the patients that um, need to be taken care of in these types of settings. The next would be certainly, as Lena's mentioned, lung ultrasound uh, for assessment of pneumothorax, but also thinking about, you know, um, interstitial diseases as well as like pneumonia um, or certainly pleural effusions that um, could be problematic in these types of scenarios. And then finally, I think taking a page out of our emergency medicine and EMS colleagues, military medicine, you know, emphasis on FAST exam uh, for trauma applications, I think also would be of great utility. And these are these are relatively, I mean, except for cardiac, I think most of the other things are pretty quick um, learning opportunities. Um, there's a comment from uh, Shivani Rob Singh who says Trinidad and Tobago would love if you all came to train them. So if anybody wants to go down to the Caribbean and train some of those folks down there, it looks like uh, they're interested. So um, not a bad place to go teach, I'm sure. Uh, uh, and I, I think we could r round up a couple of educators to go down to Trinidad um, to teach. <laughs> yeah, Moses is volunteering, I think. We're all volunteering. Uh, <laughs> no, no, just to, just to uh, contribute to the question, uh, you know, where to, sure, start from, where to start from, I think, depends on the interest group or the primary specialty of the people you are dealing with. So certainly if, if you, you are teaching anesthesiologist, then it would help to focus more on the uh, ultrasound-guided nerve blocks. Maybe the upper limb uh, nerve blocks will be a good place to start. But if you are teaching people who are managing uh, critical care or emergency setting, then you are looking more at cardiac and lung ultrasound and dosimodynamic assessment. That would be a, a better place to start from. So really, it, it depends on the interest of the people you are teaching. Yeah, I've got a couple of comments. Um, Sriram says, uh, Echo is the best, every aspect in the ICU. And then, um, but he also says, a great tool for every physician. Excellent for the ER. Vascular is the best area to encourage people to start. Vascular access, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we take that for granted. Using ultrasound of some sort or another for vascular access has been part of our practice for a decade and a half. And that's a luxury we have that some places maybe are just now starting to uh, adopt and, and having access to that. Omar, I want to come to you. I know you're you're kind of primed for this conversation um, and, and I want to lead you into this is um, – I started the conversation by saying that ultrasound, you know, when I remember when I was a resident at uh, good old uh, Michigan, um, we didn't even have ultrasounds in our ORs when I was a resident starting. Um, we had those big echo machines. If you wanted to use an ultrasound, you had to go grab it from the OB or from cardiac folks. And it was the size of a, you know, arcade video game machine. Um, those things were huge and expensive. And then during my time there, the laptop style ultrasounds came and it revolutionized regional anesthesia for us is just making that more accessible. What else has happened to ultrasound to make it more accessible in the recent times um, that makes point of care ultrasound more possible in more places and for more people? I think uh, the big thing is miniaturization. And now we have a lot of handheld probes uh, and the prices have come down pretty drastically partly because of competition and partly because technology has moved forward and we have, uh, you know, the piezoelectric crystals that generate ultrasound uh, waves. So most of these transducers are still the same, but the on-probe processing and 
uh, processing uh, of images on our phones has become so efficient that now you can carry an ultrasound uh, machine that does most of the things that a laptop style ultrasound would do, you can carry that in your pocket. Uh, and I think uh, these are gonna get smaller and smaller um, and hopefully the price is gonna keep coming down. And one thing um, I would notice that the prices we are looking at, we're talking about in the US ranging from about $2,000 to about $5,000 for these handheld ultrasounds. But outside of the US, there are plenty of other companies uh, that make ultrasound probes that potentially could be used in low resource settings that already are being used in low resource settings. These devices haven't gone through the FDA approval process, so you can't get these in the US, but they're fully functioning machines at a fraction of cost um, of the brands that we're familiar with uh, here in the US. So a huge opportunity moving forward to have everybody have their own ultrasound, kind of like, you know, everybody has a stethoscope and especially for folks working in acute care settings, emergency medicine, critical care, anesthesiology, I think it's a life and career saving device, uh, you know, these handle ultrasounds. I, I know you've got a few there. Do you want to show a couple of them just as an example to people? Sure. And I think you haven't seen these handheld ones. So I think everybody um, is familiar with the butterfly ultrasound uh, probe. This is the first generation IQ and uh, uh, still a wired probe uh, that uh, essentially um, is not a piezoelectric crystal unlike uh, previous, uh, unlike all the other ultrasound probes, uh, will do, uh, will substitute both a linear and uh, curvilinear probe uh, in one. So really breakthrough technology. Um, and then its other competitors uh, are, this is a Philips Lumify ultrasound probe that is also a wired probe. Uh, and uh, Philips recommends using it with a tablet, but it will work with any smartphone with a USB-C um, or mini USB technology, uh, micro USB technology. And then um, a recent entrant uh, uh, is the latest in the Philips V-Scan series, which is the V-Scan Air, which is a dual head probe with a battery. Um, and uh, basically you've got a curvilinear probe and a linear probe in one uh, that connects via uh, Wi-Fi to your uh, smartphone or tablet. And I think there's another company, Clarius, that also has a wireless one. Um, there's a few other out there. We're not trying to advocate for one specific brand or another, just describing some of the options out there. And as the technology is evolving, uh, Sri Ram made a comment that he said that um, I feel wireless probe with a mobile or some sort of tablet device uh, compatibility is probably the future. And it, we're already seeing that. Um, you know, our biggest problem with a, a little portable device is I'm afraid of where it's going to walk off to in our hospital and never show up again. Um, that's our biggest limitation. That's why we like the big heavy machines that are harder to steal from us. But um, from a functional standpoint, I think a wireless probe has a lot of advantages to it. Um, and then uh, I think uh, one more uh, 
Yeah, and then Sri Ram also asks us, please let us know the mobile compatible devices and places to buy. He's interested in getting one. Sri Ram, I don't know if we're going to advertise for specific companies on here, but if you want to reach out to us uh, separately, um, you know, feel free to contact us and and we can talk about stuff like that. Um, but we won't do it on the show right now. Um, well, the so we got devices. We have we have some of the use cases. How do we educate people? So, so Mark, you and Moses have worked in uh, Ghana at a hospital over there. And um, from what I understand the description, you're actually bringing in people probably outside from other countries as well to train them. Um, what is training like look, look like there? How does uh, ultrasound, regional anesthesia, how does point of care ultrasound fit into that training? Uh, Mark and then Moses, I just kind of want to get a feel for how you guys are training people in those hospitals. Um, something maybe different than what we're doing in the West. Yeah, so this has been going on for quite some time with the relationship between HSS and the CAF hospital. And we've, uh, we, we started bringing attending anesthesiologists over to teach uh, local physicians and trainees in uh, the basic uh, ultrasound guided nerve blocks. And uh, we, our focus was sort of on an evidence-based, um, uh, standardized uh, approach to, to this partnership. So we, we really wanted to focus on doing this in a, a way that did a, a thorough needs assessment, translated uh, the needs assessment results into a, a locally tailored program. Um, and then evaluated the the successes and failures of the program as it went along, so that we could sort of ad- make adjustments along the way. But the the goal all along uh, is really to make ourselves obsolete and turn that uh, uh, leadership and teaching role over to the local physicians, which has uh, already actually happened. Moses can uh, speak to that, but they're n- uh, now currently holding. Um, in-country uh, nerve block uh, training courses. So uh, gradually the, the expertise has, has, has transferred hands um, and uh, we've, we've had some good results. We've learned a lot of lessons along the way. And I, you know, I think if I could, if I could harp on any one lesson, it would be that uh, the more that we can make these programs locally driven uh, the more more successful they will be. So I try to really make myself and our, our program sort of an accessory, a, a tool that can be used for their, uh, for, their, for their benefit. Moses, you want to comment on that too, about what that training and education process is like there? Yes, yes. So to, to add to what Mark is saying, our department had the initial exposure to POCUS from some German mission, and they succeeded in training about two uh, senior people in the department. But with uh, Mark and his team coming on board through the GRACE program, it's it's led to a rapid expansion in terms of interest, and then the the skill skill acquisition was quite broad, so that. A lot of residents really got interested, and that had sustained it. The end result of that is that for a long time, the the hospital 
the first two ultrasounds that the hospital had were donations from um, our foreign uh, partners who really introduced the program. But then with the expertise now and appreciation of the scope, the interest has been sustained such that currently the department has been able to buy about six ultrasounds on its own because of its appreciation of the scope of uh, uh, POCOS. And that has also helped us to now become a training center in the country, running uh, POCOS courses in uh, NEV, ultrasound-guided NEV blocks. And then we've expanded to critical care uh, POCOS, where we started running critical care POCOS uh, ultrasound. It all started through these foreign missions, introducing the concept, whipping up interest, and then it's being sustained. So what we are doing is that we have modeled the local training alongside what, what, what was transferred to us. So we just had to tweak uh, the GRACE model of training a little to suit the local needs. And so far, it's, it's, it's been wonderful. Yeah, I got a comment from Hari again. He said, please reach out to the ASRA POCUS and POCUS Special Interest Group if they need help with teaching, training, uh, I assume curricula, those kinds of things, uh, both in POCUS and in regional anesthesia. We've got amazing educators in this organization, and uh, they know how to make this stuff happen. So I think that if other countries are looking at what you guys have pulled off, you know, there's probably teams of people that are willing to kind of drop in and create those opportunities in other countries as well and expand the reach of this uh, uh, skill set to a lot of places. Um, Lena, I want to ask you, um, when you think about limitations, challenges, barriers to we've talked about some of them, but a lot of them are slowly slipping away. What do you see as the, the challenges that are going to make this harder to introduce to places? Um, uh you know, we've talked about education and cost and those kinds of things. Are there other things that we're missing? Um, well, I, it was, it's really interesting to hear Moses talk about how he and Mark work together to um, Im improve both the equipment supply and the training and the interest. And I think, um, I think one of the problems that can get in the way is one of the barriers can be the administration. You have to get the support of the people who are giving the money for the equipment. And the other, another uh, obstacle I think is when you're first starting off um, with, especially with regional anesthesia, but also with POCUS is getting the surgeons on board when you're trying to um, get your training, uh, you know, mobilized. Uh, because it does take a little more time to do things sometimes. And that we've had the same problem in the United States when, when we're starting new uh, regional programs in, um, in the hospitals and also with POCUS if we have to do something before a case and, and the surgeon is impatient to get started. Um, so anyway, it's, it's very interesting to hear, Moses, how you have already ramped up the program this much. It's really wonderful to hear. Yeah, I got a comment from uh, Sophia Ankra. She said, I've, I've benefited immensely from the training stemming from the partnership between HSS and CATH, and now our hospital serves as a training center. So um, I don't know if you know, Sophia, if this is uh, one of your uh, students or colleagues over there, but uh, sounds like it's been a positive experience 
for her. Yeah, uh, hi, hi, Sophia. Is it Sophia? Did I say that incorrectly? Yes. Sophia. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the comment. Um, Brendan, I, you know, we often think of our U.S. military as being um, almost diplomats uh, for uh, in many countries. And you're obviously trying to educate your, um, you know, your medics to use point of care ultrasound, ultrasound for regional. But also, do they serve an education role? Has that ever been thought about as them being the educators for some of these other countries to create sustainable models like they've done in Ghana? With HSS and um, and and Moses and their team over there, has the military done that kind of embraced that kind of educational experience as well? Yeah, we have actually. Um, and this was the you mentioned in my bio that my involvement in Africa Partnership Station in 2015. But the whole point there is military civilian engagement between ourselves and our host nation partners, because um, you know. Reality, while most people think of the DOD as, as force projection, um, at the end of the day, what we are is an organization that can not only project force, but project the goodwill of, of the entire people and use our skills and our experience to then help our partners. Because as you know, the, the mentality really has been, uh, as we help grow strong partners, we help increase stability and bring and the rising tide that then floats all ships. Um, so very much so, and not only at the medic level, but at the physician level, and we'll do frequent multidisciplinary teams, interprofessional teams that, you know, will tailor educational programs for whatever, um, whatever the goals of our host nations are. And Melissa, while I've got you on screen, I'm, I'm curious what you think the value of um, credentialing, licensing in these skill sets. I know we've had that conversation and you've been part of that conversation here in the States about uh, uh, credentials or certificates or some sort of validation of skill set. Do you think that also needs to occur in some of these other environments where they're struggling just to get started? Do you think that credentialing and certification enhances that, will make that better, or do you think it'll slow them down? I think, you know, insofar as speaking about in the United States, certainly the ASA certificate for POCUS um, is really bringing forth the notion that there needs to be recognition of QA and QI uh, within its usage. Um, I think it's a little challenging because it is a lot of infrastructure. And I think as Lena's mentioned, like getting administration on board um, can be problematic. Um, but I think if you offer this and, and propose things as a value-based proposition insofar as, you know, this is uh, something that we're doing to promote patient safety, um, as well as to improve the care of the patients. Um, I think that, you know, by offering it, um, and providing credentialing insofar as a competency exam or some degree of competency is provided for by a, su a supervisor um, of your skill set, whether it's image acquisition and or image interpretation. Uh, these only add profound um, uh, benefit to the patients that, they're, that are being cared for. Omar, your thoughts on that? I mean, I know you're dealing with the ICU and um, you know, there's a lot of value in point of care ultrasound in ICUs, but, you know, if you're crap at doing it and you're getting bad results, that's actually more harmful to patients. Do you think 
training needs to be elevated to a credentialing certification process to give this tool validity as it's growing in countries that haven't had exposure to it yet? Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that you need people to be, uh, you need people to know what they're looking at. So for example, when I uh, go to Pakistan, there is at, at the large teaching hospital, Holy Family Hospital in Rawalpindi, which is, I don't know, 600 beds. Um, there's one ultrasound machine that sits in the CCU. And so even if you start a program and people get trained once or twice, and we go and train people in the ICU and the ED and the anesthesia department, and there's no, you know, certification, there is no, you know, continuing medical education and recertification, then people are going to forget what they're looking at. And when it is crunch time and you're actually trying to use this, especially in those parts of the world where the EDs are overcrowded, there's like long lines of patients and you have to do things really quickly. I think it's really critically important to have that kind of quality assurance and have those have those systems. I don't think we, those uh, I don't think places like Pakistan that I have personal experience with are ready for like big pack systems because of the technical difficulties, but at least like having resources uh, that are, that people can use to recertify and refresh their knowledge. I think they're critically important to establish. I got a comment from Steve Haskins that many of us know um, as a leader in POCUS education. He says limited resource environments mean distance from either expensive or large traditional imaging modalities, yet there are still barriers to adoption in large medical centers. So he's saying that's problematic everywhere. How do we overcome those barriers? Is it just requiring training of the next generation through governing bodies like the ABA or ACGME, or is it more thorough or more through demonstrating value and um, and having more people out there doing it, I assume. And how does that translate into global health setting? So I don't think Steve's providing us an answer, but just more of the same questions. Um, and, and I don't think there are easy answers for this. Um, Brendan, I have a question from you from Hari too. He says, um, what software or technology do you guys use to transfer images from the military uh, combat zone base or you know wherever um, you're using these tools, especially if a patient needs to be transferred Based on those diagnostic skills, uh, diagnostic information, how do you communicate that to the next care team that's involved in their care? Hey, can I just joke and say that's classified? <laughs> um, you, that, that wouldn't be a joke because I wouldn't know any different. So <laughs> <laughs> it's easy out, right? Yeah. Um, no, so so that, that you know, there's development in this process as um, you know, communication security is is kind of a a unique thing that is separate to the military and often not a matter of concern, you know, in my wilderness medicine practice, for example, um, you know, in the early days, the answer was either you took the word of the clinician doing it, or you went with the patient and were able to, to save those clips or images. Um, but there's obvious ongoing development information, you know, kind of the IT component of that. But I think, in the reality is that kind of dovetails with Steven's question and Omar's comment. So if I can kind of jump for a second, Raj. Yeah, please. Uh, you know, I think 
that the most interesting part for us as we demonstrate this value and we talk about certification programs is when you've done this long enough and you see yourself misled by a study you've misinterpreted um, or a study you just got inadequately obtained images because you hadn't practiced or because of something, um, all of a sudden you start to realize that value in the ongoing certification, the ongoing practice and development, especially in a tool that is such a um, an individual perishable skill as to how you acquire these images. These are not, you know, standardized axial images obtained in a cradle like an MRI is. These are things that it's easy to slip a, a centimeter or two in any given direction and fail to obtain a great image. So I, I think that's a good argument for ongoing certification of, or, or training or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, I didn't mean to poke you about that, but um, I, I think the question is actually relevant to even my hospital. Like we have, we struggle with data transfers, even though we've got these massive PAC systems, we struggle with, um, you know, the the use of the ultrasound at the bedside, and then you got to plug into an ethernet somewhere and then upload. We sort of have wireless, but it's inconsistent, you know, and then there's security and privacy issues with transfers of data. So, I mean, this backend part of it is a huge hurdle that hasn't been solved yet. Um, and I think that's true um, whether you have direct access to a network or not, it's still a problem. Um, and then communicating that effectively. If I have a screenshot of uh, a, a heart, does that tell me anything um, without a video clip? Does the video clip by itself tell you anything um, without the interpretation? So there's layers of data that need to be communicated to the next person for that to be an effective um, imaging modality. And I think we're still in the very, very beginning stages of communicating all that information. Um, so I, I'd like to ask, um, as we wrap up, because we've already been about 50 minutes, you know, I told you guys at the beginning that the time will uh, go by quickly. I'm going to go through each of you guys and uh, and ask you quickly. Um, one thing that you think that uh, people should take away from this conversation or or one thing that you think is coming on the horizon that will really um, change this conversation uh, and move it forward. So Mark, I'm going to start with you because you're next to me on my screen here. So, sure. so what do you think? Um, one thing that will kind of really elevate this conversation or change it, or one thing that people should take home with them? I think, you know, as a non-focused person, uh, but someone who's de dealt with ultrasonography in limited resource settings, I, I would say um, the, the, the global health literature has really focused on being anti-donation and creating dependence on uh, donations from outside uh, places and rather sort of focused on using what is locally available. And I think when it comes to using ultrasounds, whether it's for nerve blocks or for POCUS, I think there really has to be an outside investment uh, and sustained period of uh, training to use the, the uh, that equipment in order for that to become a local priority. And that was something that sort of uh, I, I had to learn over time and I feel is, is, is uh, important. Omar? Yeah, so I think uh, the game changer, <clears throat> the game changer is going to be cost of uh, 
new devices. And I think we really, really need to up our game in terms of education and focus on, I don't think we have truly figured out what is the highest yield um, in terms of like teaching point of care ultrasound. And I think it is an opportunity, provides an opportunity to the community to figure out what is the highest yield and then really spread the message so that, you know, people's lives get better because these handheld portable ultrasounds are essentially playing a similar role to what EKG machines played in these low resource countries where before that you, you don't even have an EKG machine in the emergency department. Now you've got somebody who can actually differentiate different forms of shock at the bedside pretty quickly with an ultrasound probe. So I think we really need to up our game in terms of education. Lena? I just uh, think when you're introducing new technology like this in a low resource environment where people are struggling to get support for equipment and training, and um, I, I think it'll be very important to show value and to get enthusiasm for the, for the technique. Otherwise, you don't get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, any thoughts here? Uh, you know, I was thinking about it, and as far as education's considered, um, I think teleguidance is really a chance, like an opportunity for um, those who are in these types of environments to reach out to their mentorships or through other international academic affiliations to find guidance in, in that, whether it's through one of the programs offered by some of the devices we've talked, or just um, being able to share that information in real time with colleagues across the sea. And, and I'm going to add a question to you, Melissa. Do you think um, guide, teleguidance through augmented reality, virtual reality, is that too far away still? Or is it, I doubt it's, it. it becomes another another barrier to entry for some of these places that technology and the network bandwidth to do that kind of guidance? Is that still too far away? Have, having not practiced in these environments, I don't know exactly. But I think that, you know, we thought that point of care ultrasound was pretty far away even just five years ago. And here we are using it on a day-to-day basis in many institutions around the country. Brendan, your thoughts? I, for me, I tell you, it's, it's been interesting because emergency medicine, we've been, we've been playing with ultrasound for the last 20 some years, right? Yeah. So we got a bit of a, a head start, but at the same time, I, you know, hats off to colleagues of mine, like Nick Theoni at Michigan, who, um, who have started the development of their own program in a novel way, even in a, in a setting that's, you know, partially already developed. And so I look as we punch this technology out into the wilderness, into resource constrained environments, whether it's real time guidance or whether it's, you know, delayed network transmission, um, the, we've seen the tech, the, the technology get smaller and more portable. We've seen it get cheaper. And now is the chance for us to still experiment and push the envelope on where we're using those technologies, how we're using them, and broadening our scope so that we can bring holistic care. Um, yeah, I, I think this is the next future for us. Moses, I'm going to come to you in just a second. Uh, I think Omar said that he has a comment about the ARVR issue. Maybe he has some insight on that. Um, yeah, so... Um, we have tried to do some teaching uh, about um, um, regional anesthesia um, to our colleagues in Haiti, 
and uh, even like streaming. So you can screen share from your phone and the person on the other end in the US can basically with a small amount of delay, see what you're doing and give you verbal feedback and uh, sort of do teleguidance. And even that um, is fairly difficult and laggy with internet uh, access uh, in some parts of the world, including uh, Haiti. AR, VR at this point in time is costing tens of thousands of dollars even to make like short videos. Um, let alone do some real-time work. So uh, right now, in the foreseeable future, I think AirVR is going to need a lot more resources than most big institutions are capable of, let alone uh, uh, you know developing countries. And yet, here I say this, and I'm talking to Moses in Nigeria over live stream. So maybe maybe we're closer than we think, you know, with some of this stuff. Moses, your thoughts. Yeah, so what I will say is that initially, the, when, when you want to start POCUS, and this advice goes to those of us in low-resource setting, the initial cost may look scary and prohibitive, but when you do the analysis and you look at the benefits, it's really rather cost-saving, and uh, we have seen a lot of benefits from it because the the things we are able to do with it, the cost savings, the timeliness of intervention, it's it's really helpful. And from our, our hospital, for instance, we have now decided to pump a lot of resources into uh, acquiring ultrasound to 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 uh, expand our scope of practice. So. I will encourage low resource setting uh, countries and institutions to really venture into POCOS. It's, it's really helpful. Yeah, I had a comment um, in the chat from Sriram who made, I, I think, a really good summary statement. He says, um, many countries have funding. They're just not properly used due to the lack of awareness and importance of POCOS. And then the second part of his comment was that they need the education, the curriculum to go with it. Um, you know, it's uh, very similar to what we had with ultrasound regional when it first came around is that a lot of people got excited, bought the equipment, and then nobody taught them how to do it. And it's sat in the corner and just collected dust because the training the and the and the maintenance of that skill set wasn't um, uh, that equivalent effort wasn't put into it as it was to buy the equipment. So both things have to come as a package to make these things really worthwhile. Well, you know, I am just, I've learned a lot today. Um, It's been an incredible conversation. Um, A couple of takeaways that I have is that uh, we have wonderful people out there who know how to teach this stuff, who have the organizational skills to um, share their their knowledge um, across the planet, and and we should take advantage of that and connect those people together with people who need the training, um, and and maybe even help getting the equipment as well. Um, I do want to make a plug. I put it in the comments for those who you guys are interested. And right now, this is a very um, Western U.S. focused course, but you know maybe this is something an opportunity down the road. Azure Pain Medicine does introduction to POCUS courses on a regular basis, um, twice a year as a separate standalone course, and then also there's components during their annual meeting. Go to azure.com if you want to go find that um, course. I took that course its very first time out of the gate. It was amazing. They they do just do a phenomenal job, um, and so I highly encourage those. Uh, 
people to go see that and uh, go attend uh, that workshop. But I, I want to thank all my guests, Mark, Lena, Omar, Melissa, Brendan, Moses. You guys have been fantastic. Um, I don't think I've met anybody except for Melissa in the past. And I, I just really have enjoyed talking with all of you. Um, you guys do great work out there, and I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, but thank you, and thank you for those people who listened and were watching and shared comments um, during the live stream. Uh, feel free to share this uh, this video uh, podcast with your friends and colleagues who might get something out of it. And use Azure.com as a resource. Um, we have a point-of-care ultrasound uh, special interest group. Um, so that goes to Azure.com slash SIGS slash POCUS. And we have a global anesthesia interest group, Azure.com slash SIGS slash global. And both of those could be resources for you to expand your uh, skill set in your institution. Thank you, everybody, and have a good night. 